Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker. If you would, if uh, you'd like to, turn in your copy of God's Word, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're in a continued study, instructions for the church for teaching, leading, and equipping. Study through First and Second Timothy and Titus. Our subject today, living the gospel, fighting the good fight. I'd like you to look at verse 18. We're going to read there through verse 20. We started this last week, just got our feet wet, and uh, we asked a couple questions. I think we'll answer them today. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight of faith, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Um, hung these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so they'd be taught not to blaspheme. Stop right there. We're going to take a closer look at this, this new section, Living the Gospel, especially verse 18. Look back there if you would. Verse 18 says this, This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. We saw last week as we began to look at this section, that word command has to do with delivering a message. It's uh, really in a military format. I give you orders. We've seen the message, although it's from Paul, really it's from Jesus, we saw in verse 1, so he's giving orders from Jesus, and it's important that he wants to make sure Timothy understands the, the gravity of the whole thing. This is the message I have from the Lord. I entrust it, he says, to you. I said it before you, really, I, to your keeping. And then Timothy, he says, my son, and we looked at this term of endearment very closely at the beginning of the chapter, so we won't look at it again, but really would... It helps us have some context for interpreting the letters. Paul considered Timothy a faithful man. He considered him uh, someone who had duplicated himself through, and he looked at Timothy as another generation of a reproducing believer. And then we saw Paul recall something interesting. He says, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. Some specific time, perhaps Timothy's ordination, we saw that something had been said about him. We don't know when or where this happened, but we saw that uh, from information from other parts of Scripture, that we know that when Paul recruited Timothy, uh, the brothers at Lystra had a lot of good things to speak about him. We saw also last time that he was given a spiritual gift, which became clear as he began his ministry, probably that of teaching or exhortation. We saw, number two, a prophecy was made over him in which important things were said about his future ministry from those who were also elders in a position to recognize those gifts. And then we saw, number three, that the elders laid hands on him. So the other elders solemnly laid their hands on Timothy. They prayed over him. And this was a significant time in his life, just obviously. So he says, this command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, and then really a parenthetical statement that we just looked at, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them, here it is, here's the, here's the command, fight the good fight. These high spiritual hopes that others held for him constituted a real powerful appeal to fight the good fight. And we saw there are two words for fight here. The first one, stratuo, at first is a verb, present middle subjunctive. We saw that um, literally it's to engage in war, present tense, actions in process, middle voice, the subject of the verb is doing the acting himself. So he's, Timothy is to be actively involved. Subjunctive mood is the mood where there's some question of, of uh, probability whether it will happen or not, literally, might you fight, or better, you should fight. The idea is that perhaps it's not going on yet, but it should be going on. Whether it will happen, there's still some question. And then, of course, that word, word good, the adjective that has in the context of praiseworthiness, honorableness, nobleness, 
And then that second word, fight, that's the noun, stratia. That's where we get our word for campaign, for strategy, really, the, the transliterated word. So obviously, it's referring to something Paul says to Timothy. Your life and your ministry is like a war. That's Paul's intent. So fight it well. You should fight it well. Have a strategy. And we saw last time not all wars are good wars. Not all fights are good fights. Uh, but there is a virtuous warfare, obviously, because Paul is telling Timothy to fight it. Uh, there's a good, excellent warfare that is to be well fought. And now what Paul has in mind, and we're going to see this, it's a spiritual war. It has massive consequences and proportions. He's not talking about a physical war or even an earthly war, although it will cost you physically to do it, and it's going to take place here. He's certainly not talking about a human war, even though it's going to, the conflict will involve humans. He's talking about a war on the spiritual level, and he's reminding Timothy that he needs to fight the good fight, the clash with eternal consequences for souls. And that was our first stop, our first principle that we can pull out of living the gospel. Fighting the good fight is relating to the life of the believer in this fallen world. It's a continuous battle. We looked at length last time at a number of passages that bring everyone into this understanding, not just those who lead the church. And so we asked the question, obviously, how do we fight well? And, and that's probably the question Timothy had in his mind as he read this actual letter from Paul to him. And so that's the question we have to ask. How can we fight the good fight? What does it mean to fight the good fight? How is that defined? And I think that that's as important a question as we can answer in our spiritual life. And if we're going to understand the answer that Paul wants Timothy to understand about fighting the good fight, we're going to have to understand some of the elements of the warfare. And because we looked at numerous scriptures that indicate that everyone is in that warfare. So for a moment, I'd like you to look ahead just briefly to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. So turn there if you would. From time to time, we have you do this. It'll be several times today. Just because I want you to be in the habit of looking at the scriptures and seeing what it says, what it means by what it says, and how that applies to you. And you'll be able to make some notes, especially if you're, even if you're using a U version that allows you to make some notes and highlight some things. And this will be important for you. It's very similar language I think you'll see here. In verse 12, he says of chapter 6, Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the, of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's go back. Very similar language, different words, and we're going to highlight those. I think it'll help your understanding. Fight the good fight. Now, this is the first fight. Uh, agonizu, to strive or endeavor with strenuous zeal. It's to contend or struggle. It's where we get our transliterated, transliterated English word, agonize, to agonize. Now, catch this. Present middle, our present middle voice, imperative, not subjunctive. What's imperative mean? It means, and you, I think you understand it from the Word, don't you? Anytime you see a command in the Scriptures that's imperative, it's not optional whether or not you act on it. It's required for you to do it. And that's our first clue as we think about what it means to fight the good fight. This one's not in the subjunctive. It's not some question about it, or you should fight the good fight. That is to fight the good fight. It's commanded. What's commanded? The good fight of faith. Get involved then in the noble struggle. Take hold of, catch this, of eternal life. Epilambu, compound verb. Epi is the preposition on or in, has to do with the position. To get into position, lambano is the primary verb to make one's own. The idea there, again, a command, eris tense, so it's a point in the past, a snapshot, if you will, middle voice acting on itself, imperative mood, that expresses a command to act, to struggle for it, to go to war. 
to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul says, God did the calling. You, Timothy, here it is, made the good confession. You said the same thing God said. And just in a very simple sense, and I think you understand this, in order for you to come to faith, you have to say the same thing God says. You understand that, right? I mean, you don't, you don't get to come into faith unless you agree with God that you're a sinner and you have to repent. You have to say the same thing. That's to confess. And so, Timothy said the same thing that God said in the presence of many witnesses and understood what was happening, much like we looked at last time, but just some stronger language. And then Paul writes this, look at verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Paul says, I'm making this requirement of you as it were right before the Lord himself. Paul does this a lot. That's how grave the command is. I'm saying this as it were right before the Lord. And of course, when you say or do anything, you are doing it right before the Lord. And Jesus, who made a good confession, the ultimate example of that good confession before Pontius Pilate, he stuck with it, did what he was going to do. He could have shirked out of it, but at the point where he was before Pontius Pilate, he made the good confession. Paul says, before the Lord, as it were, right before his throne and before Christ Jesus, who is the example of a good confession and what faithfulness looks like. And then look at verse 14. Very strong statement. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's commanding Timothy like a general would command a colonel. He's commanding him to do this. To do what? To get in the position to struggle and agonize and be at war, if you will, for Timothy 1.18, on behalf of the faith. And what I like about this, and what I like about how it's phrased here, it, it puts Timothy's charge in the category of an obligation. A responsibility or a duty, if you will, if you want to use an old-fashioned word. And that's not a word we hear much in Christianity. I mean, we talk about joy and we talk about peace and we talk about fulfillment and we talk about satisfaction from the spiritual end and there's nothing wrong with those kinds of things. It's true. We talk about gratitude and Christianity is quick to talk about freedom. Sometimes I think it's from a very indulgent perspective, but freedom nonetheless and so instead of duty, what we have is indulgence. Instead of agonizing and strategizing, we talk about feeling fulfilled and having a blessed life. I think we missed a good portion, perhaps, of what the Scripture has to say about how we're supposed to live. And some of this is the culture making its way into the church because we live in an undisciplined culture. In fact, our culture majors in self-indulgence. It didn't used to be that way. If you were in the Boy Scouts of America back before it was ruined by immorality and the, mo and the woke mob, uh, you probably remember the Scout Oath, which first appeared with the publication of Scouting for Boys in 1908. Here's how it goes. Listen to it. On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the Scout law to help other people at all times to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. And then in explaining this scout oath and the scout law, Scouting for Boys wrote, the scout law has 12 points. Each is a goal for every scout. A scout tries to live up to the law every day. It's not always easy to do, but a scout always tries. And here are the goals. Trustworthy. Tell the truth and keep promises. People can depend on you. Loyal. Show that you care about your family and friends, scout leaders, school and country. Helpful. Volunteer to help others without expecting a reward. Friendly. 
Be a friend to everyone, even people who are very different from you. Courteous. Be polite to everyone and always use good manners. Kind. Treat others as you'd like to be treated. Never harm or kill any living thing without good reason. Obedient. Follow the rules of your family, school, and pack. Obey the laws of your community and country. Cheerful. Look for the bright side of life. Cheerfully do tasks that come your way. Try to help others be happy. Thrifty. Work to pay your own way. Try not to be wasteful. Use time, food, supplies, and natural resources wisely. Brave. Face difficult situations even when you feel afraid. Do what you think is right despite what other, others might be doing or saying. Clean. Keep your body and your mind fit. Help keep your home and your community clean. And finally, reverent. Be reverent towards God. Be faithful in your religious duties. Respect the beliefs of others. Everything about belief, everything about responsibility, everything about faithfulness, everything about selflessness, see, wasn't always the way the culture is. The culture is not always the way it is now. But we have this preoccupation with self-indulgence. It's, and in fact, it's even axiomatic. Take care of yourself as if there's any chance in the world that you wouldn't. That's precisely what we're giving ourselves to do every single day. Treat yourself. Give yourself a break. Be good to yourself. My favorite. Just be you. And you probably can think of more, right? They're popping into your mind. Just reflects our culture's self-absorbed attitude. We overemphasize the importance of our successes and our victories, and we overemphasize what we need in order to be happy. And our culture in general puts a big emphasis on doing whatever makes me feel good. And whatever they particularly want to do or don't want to do, mark this, governs their life. It's true, isn't it? That's pretty much how people make decisions. I don't want to do that, so I'm not going to. I do want to do this, so I'm going to do whatever it takes to make this happen. And a contributing factor, certainly, at least in our present culture under this current administration, is the administration that thinks it should be giving away everything. They make it very easy to stay home and do nothing. If you tried to get your car fixed recently, can't get anybody to work. Try to build a house, nobody comes to work. Why? Because we don't have to, and I don't feel like doing it, and I can stay home and make just as much, and I'm good. So it does, it's, not hard to, it's not hard to see the parallels. And of course, they make it very easy in our current environment to excuse away the obligation to pay back what was borrowed. Even though you promised to do it, and it was your obligation and your duty, now you don't have to do it anymore. Is that good for us? I mean, that just kind of exacerbates the problem, doesn't it? We're already self-absorbent enough. We always think we're not being treated fairly and not doing what we should do, and now we just have a government that makes sure we just affirm all of that with us. It's a disaster. We know very little of duty. And what happens in the culture has really made its way into the church. A lot of people who, as we said, love to talk about liberty, but what they mean really by that is just not the liberty of the Bible, but the liberty of self-indulgence, to do whatever you feel like doing. And they won't do anything they don't feel like doing. And we can couple that with something else that's become very important to our culture. It's that attitude of self-indulgence, which is exacerbated by an anti-authority attitude, which has again been propagated by a current administration of defund the police. People immediately react negatively to authority because everybody's against authority in a society that says, I'm in charge of me. And there's this critic mentality, I think, that's in everything now. 
everything's up for criticism. So anytime you say this is the truth or this is what we're supposed to do, this is in the imperative, immediately there's a bunch of criticism. Well, I don't really believe that. Well, it's very clear here, but yeah, but that's not, that's not right for me. Respect for any authorities in question, and that's made its way into the church. Individual opinions, experiences, and feelings are more important and overrule imperative statements. Lots of people don't like them in the culture. They're given too little attention in the church. We've forgotten what that looked like. It wasn't like that 100 years ago. People understood they had a duty. There were things they were supposed to do. It wasn't all about resting. It wasn't all about feeling fulfilled. And that was principle number two in living out the gospel, this fighting the good fight. It's duty of the believer. It's our responsibility to fight the good fight. I don't think you can really understand our passage from 1 Timothy 1.18 or the one we just read from 1 Timothy 6.12 any other way. Now, I want to illustrate that because you might think, well, man, he's really, he's really going out there pretty far. It's a passage you may not be familiar with. I hope you are. It's found in Luke 17.7. I'd like you to turn there. Again, I want, want you to turn in your Bible. And I, I think you'll be glad you did. You're going, to make some, you're going to make some connections to the passage that we're in about doing the duty of fighting the good fight of faith, getting away from self-pandering and, and only doing what you feel like doing and wanting everybody to, to appreciate you and affirm you and all of this. This will probably put an end to all of that. This is Jesus talking, talking to his disciples. Uh, it's a very stark thing that he has to say, very important passage. Verse 7 of Luke 17 Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you may eat and drink? So he's using a parable, isn't he? He's using a situation that most are familiar with. You have someone who's hired, who works for you, and they work in the field all day, and they come in. Uh, do they get to sit down, and you just take care of them and do what, you know, whatever they need? No. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to go and clean themselves up, put on new clothes, and start preparing the meal, and make sure that everything in the house is taken care of. So he's just using a, a thing, something they should understand. Now, that might strike you as odd, perhaps, because we have, I think, an orientation around self-indulgence. We don't want to do anything for anybody, and we want everybody to do something for us. But I think um, he's going to take this, and he's going to connect it to reality. Verse 9, he says, he does not thank the slave because he did these, the things which were commanded, does he? So there's some commands that went out. They knew what they were supposed to do. They come in and do them. Does he say, oh, you did such a great job. Good job. You're so affirmed. I mean, you just really, this is really great. No. Now he's going to connect it to them. Verse 10. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. Say it again to yourself. Because this has to do with being a disciple. We are unworthy slaves and we've only done what was required for us to do. We've only done the command. Don't get to be affirmed, oh, good job, you know, wow. This is disciples who are arguing over who is going to be the greatest, and who gets to sit where in the kingdom, and who's going to be in charge of what, and who gets to sit the right hand of Jesus. And he's just going to say, hold on. Self-obsessed, self-centered, pandering yourself, taking care of yourself, Want to be affirmed, want to be happy, want to be somebody patting you on the back all the time, making you feel good. Listen, 
Just do the command. And don't expect everybody to rejoice just because you did what you were supposed to do. Remember the two sons who went out? Told the two sons to go out. One said, I won't. And then he did. And the other said, I will. And then he didn't. Remember that? The one said, I won't. But then he did. He, he did the command, right? So he compared it to uh, the uh, Jewish leaders and the people who were hearing the gospel. I reject it. No, no. Actually, I'm going to accept it. Oh, no, I accept you. No, I'm not going to do it. Which is the one that did the master's will, the one who did it, right? So again, it's, we did our job, we did our duty, it's our responsibility. First Timothy 1.18, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, by them you what? You fight the good fight. This is a continuous battle going on, it's our duty to fight it, and it's a spiritual war of massive proportions. Now, we looked at this passage last week. I'm going to look at it again. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, verse 13, take up the full armor of God so that you be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. So, just summarizing, you're in a war your enemy is clearly well entrenched. He's in the upper echelons all around you in society. Uh, God provides the weapons. We saw from 2 Corinthians 10. We're going to look at that again today. And God provides the armor, and you're to do everything in order to stand firm because that's your duty. See? Now, remember, as we think about the powers and the world forces of this darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness in high places, this is referring to Satan and his demons. And just as a footnote, we've, been, we've taught on this numerous times, I just want to remind you, you're not commanded to cast him out. You're not supposed to take authority over him in Jesus' name and make him do whatever you think you're going to be able to make him do, or any of the things so popular among false teachers today. So get that straight. Your duty is not to do that. You're not commanded anywhere in Scripture to do that, and you're certainly not supposed to. In fact, there are a number of passages that would indicate that's not your job at all. So don't think your duty is that. It's also important to remember that Satan and his demons are not particularly interested in you as an individual. That might come as a shock because we're in a culture that kind of centers around ourselves and we want to be the sole attention. We're so powerful that Satan must really be interested in me. Listen, he's not, okay? And I think we understand by now that they oppose God. Satan hates God. He opposes Christ. You and I are incidental to the whole struggle. And only as we're used for the kingdom, for God's glory, exalting Christ, are we pertinent in any minor way. Because all this is going on in a plane that we don't see. About half the way through the tribulation from Revelation 12, 9, it's an interesting passage. It says this, John has told this, and he writes this down for us. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before God day and night. Now, a couple of things to point out here. Okay, in this battle that's going on, in this upper echelons of, of all of culture and all of society, one you know, that we don't see, we get to see a little picture here that from creation all the way up to halfway through the tribulation, the church is gone, tribulation on the world, Lord's wrath is poured out, He's going to create this whole opportunity for millions of people to come to faith. 
It's not the Lord's will that any perish. And even in the middle of judgments, he wants to see people come to faith. Church is not there, but halfway through, a very important thing happens, which indicates something that's been happening all up until now. That Satan and the demons have had some type of access to the Lord in heaven. And in that access, what are they doing? A couple of things. They're, number one, accusing the brethren. What's that mean? That just means day and night, if they get opportunity, maybe the Lord has certain hours, you know, whatever it is, they get to come before the court and they just say, you know, look at Kurt, he's such a loser and he fails every time and he he doesn't deserve to do anything that you've asked him to do. And it's not because he cares about you and me, but because he wants to make God look bad, see? He wants to make sure that the Lord looks, if he can, foolish in doing anything for me, you see? Or you. And that was the whole point of the book of Job, remember? I mean, Job was just making a heavenly point. Job didn't know that he was making a heavenly point. What did God do? I mean, God said, you know, here's a godly man in Job, and what does Satan and the demons say? Oh, no, he's not godly. Let us have him for a few minutes. He'll betray you. He'll embarrass you. You know, they couldn't wait to get their hands on Job. And even in the middle of all of that, they didn't get to do whatever they wanted to Job. But the idea was to embarrass the Lord. The Lord said he's godly. Uh, we'll, show you, we'll show you that he's not godly. He'll embarrass you. So Job's doing the whole thing and going through all of that. He didn't know he's the subject of this heavenly debate. Isn't that cool? That should encourage you if you're going through a difficult time. Maybe you're the subject of a heavenly debate. Just feel faithful. Just be faithful. Demons were determined to prove God wrong. Not just he's an accuser of the brethren. He's deceived the whole world. And you can be deceived by him too, but it's incidental to the real issue. He wants to steal, he wants to kill, he wants to destroy the world because it would be an embarrassment to the Lord, see, who made everyone and everything and sent Jesus to redeem, and then Satan and the demons were like nothing better than to see the world cast away. Remember, I've told you many times, you know, sometimes the way believers live their lives uh, sometimes casts disparity on the Lord, doesn't it? I mean, it embarrasses him. Because they have to chasten them, and then they have unsafe friends. They're like, man, all that, all that happens to those people, that's one bad thing after another. Why would I want to be a Christian? You see? just makes the Lord look bad. That's what Satan's about. See? And we'll look more of that in just a minute. How about Adam and Eve? He deceived Adam and Eve. How? By representing God badly. Right? Oh, God didn't say that. That's not what he meant by that. He just means don't do it because you'll be like him. And he doesn't want anybody to be like him. Oh, okay. Well, I'd like to be like him. You see, it, it wasn't, I mean, they were incidental to the whole fall. Of course, they're the only two on the earth, so that's the prime time to send the earth in the wrong direction. You see? Just the vehicle by which the world could be ruined, the world God had made. Satan and the demons were interested in their own glory. We're not the issue. So he's an accuser of the brethren, he deceived the whole world. He'd destroy us and defeat us if he could, not because he hates us, but because he hates the God whom we serve and represent. You see? But as those who belong to Christ, he has no authority on his own to do anything to us, just like Job. He only had certain things he could do. Remember when we went through uh, Satan and the demons and angels, I told you, it's good to think about demons with, they're just spirits with lines drawn around them. I mean, as much autonomy as they may have, they don't have ultimate autonomy. They can't do whatever they want to do. They only can do under the Lord's authority for a temporary dominion on the earth to have certain authority to do certain things, but nothing to a believer apart from the Lord's hand in it. And we saw that as an example in the Apostle Paul, right? Remember? He's been tormented by a thorn in the flesh. 
A demon who's come to keep me humble. Do you remember? The Lord even used demons to do his bidding to keep Paul humble. And there have been many examples like that. We've seen that over and over again. So he's an accuser of the brethren. He deceived the whole world. He destroyed us and defeated us if he could. And then this is the third principle of our struggle against the gospel. This fighting for the, the good fight. It's our struggle and warfare. And it reflects on the Lord. That's what I just uh, kind of implied a minute ago. What do I mean? Well, part of the battle, our part of the battle, because there's this whole other plane of things going on and fighting that we don't see, the holy angels and the demons. And remember Daniel 10 when we went through Daniel. Remember that uh, Daniel was praying and he didn't have any response. And then finally later, the angel comes and responds and says, I meant to come immediately and I tried to, but I was prohibited from coming from, from the prince of Persia, a demon that resisted him. He had to get another holy angel to come and overpower him and come talk to Daniel. Remember that? So this is whole battle, cosmic battle going on for the souls of men in different places and in countries and in the high places. Still there, still doing it. So this whole thing going on, but we have this part in this battle. Our part in the battle reflects well on God when we do it well and poorly on God when we do it poorly. What do I mean by that? Well, here's, here's an example of that, and there are numerous ones we could look at, but 1 Corinthians six fourteen, I think is a powerful enough one. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will raise us up through his power. Now, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So, just making a clear statement that you understand to be true. You were buried with Christ and you were raised with him, and you're a member of his own body. Okay? We've looked at that. I don't think you need me to explain that to you again. Shall then I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. What do you mean? Well... Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man uh, sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, for you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Did you catch that? The whole idea then is clear that you've been joined with Christ and then when you are not doing your duty and you're committing immorality, what are you doing? You're joining Christ with immorality. You see, when you do your duty, God looks good. And when you don't, he looks bad. You understand? There's this constant struggle. It can reflect badly on, the, on Christ when we don't fight the good fight. And that's that issue that we've talked about before with Christians who walk in disobedience that we said a minute ago. You know, and then the Lord has to chasten them and everybody's looking at them and thinking, man, what's going on? And how about, how about this? How about uh, 1 Corinthians 11? Where you go and you take the communion and you do it in an unworthy manner. What happens? You can be weak and you can be sick and a number sleep. And that makes God look bad, doesn't it? What about Israel? Do you remember what happened when, uh, when the Israel's wandering the wilderness? Do you remember? And occasionally he says, I'm just going to destroy them. They're just so wicked. And Moses pleads the case for Israel. What's he say? What will the, God, what, what will the, the nations around us say if, that you took us out of Egypt, out here just to kill us all? What's he saying? It just makes you look really bad, God. You see? Would God be bad in destroying them? No. Was, is he just in destroying wickedness? Of course. Does it make God look capricious and vindictive? Sure it does in a, in a surface level. So I think we could see that, right? What happened when Jerusalem was destroyed? Become a byword, right? Something that people utter under their breath. May you be like Jerusalem, you know? That kind of thing. Did it make God look bad? Sure. He had to destroy his people and, and ransack the town. The temple's torn down. Everything's burned. That's terrible, isn't it? 
But that's what happens, see. You don't do your duty, what happens? And the Lord looks bad. So it's connected. It's this constant struggle. And then so Satan's the accuser of the brother, and he's deceived the whole world. He could destroy us and defeat us if he could, but the Lord keeps him from doing that. And then we see Satan is at work in the world troubling those who don't know Christ. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. It's an interesting passage. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So part of the struggle in fighting the good fight is, is doing good among all the evil in the world. We, we should understand that, right? People say, well, why is there so much evil in the world? Well, we can understand the power of sin and, and the fall and all that and how it's taken over. But on the other side, as a believer, you can do a lot of good and make Christ look what? Wonderful in the middle of all that evil, can't you? And so Satan's at work in the world. There's this whole struggle going on there, troubling those who don't know Christ. It shouldn't surprise you. You should remember that when you see wicked things come out of Washington. When you see things around the world, people do horrible things. When you look back through history, and you see all the wickedness that's been perpetrated on people. When you see communism responsible for more human suffering than any other system of government in the history of the world. When you see all of that, that should help you understand what's going on. You should have a bigger perspective. Yes, do we blame people who are in control and in charge? Yes. But do we understand what's really happening? Sure we do. So part of the struggle and fighting the good fights, doing good among the evil in the world. And, and as we said last week, and we illustrated it today, some people live in such a superficial level. I mean, we, look at what we're talking about here. And, and then some people will say they think Satan's at work attacking them in the most trivial, <laughs> trivial of ways. You know, got a flat tire on the highway, Satan's attacking me. Really? I think he's got a few more things to do besides that. Besides, if you're not involved, you're not plugged in, you know, he's not even thinking about you at all. You're doing precisely what he'd like for you to do. You know, I, well, I got so many bills, I'm just, Satan's really attacking me because I don't have any money. No, you live like the world, and you got yourself in a position where you love money, and you, you spent too much, and now you're in trouble. That's not Satan attacking you. You lived precisely like he wanted you to live, outside your means, and now here you are, see. There's that trivial level that so many people live, it's an, an ignorance about the reality of true spiritual warfare. And, and it's an ignorance because they've really gone AWOL. They're not fighting. They've run away from the fight. Taking care of themselves. And you can see that really because there's no real hardship going on. There's no real struggle in the cosmic battle, no sacrifice, very little earnestness, very little fervency, very little faithfulness in their life. And so it's just it's obvious. They've gone AWOL. They don't see the battle or they think the battle is something trivial and uh, they've missed the whole thing. See, that's principle number four living out the gospel, fighting the good fight. There's hardship in the fight. There's hardship. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, what does it say? suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, that is not a statement you would make in a typical megachurch because people won't like it and they won't come back next week and they won't give, okay? So remember that those kind of hard sayings are not ones you're going to hear. But this is Christianity 101. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So what should we expect? We should expect, if you're engaged in the battle, that you should suffer hardship. We should expect to be cut off from the affairs of this world and this life. We should expect to do what we do for the sake of the one who called us to be a soldier. Because it's a spiritual warfare. And numerous times throughout the course of years, and, and, and of course it's just um, my own example, but listen... The Lord has brought me face-to-face -face with demon-possessed people. Maybe that's happened to you. 
In the middle of a service down in Florida, a middle-aged woman stood up and began screaming at me. About this far into the service, sitting about right here, large, uh, had a balcony down on the bottom floor. She's about halfway back. She stands up and starts screaming profanity at me. That's a little disconcerting. And I remember going and visiting a young man. One of the first churches I got to serve in, whose parents asked me to come and talk to him because he was out of control. And I, I brought somebody else with me. And, and when we walked in, he's in the living room. He literally grabbed a couch and slung it at us by himself and screamed at me to get out at the top of his lungs. That's a little disturbing. And, and as disturbing as that was, and as unsettling as all that was, as I thought about it afterwards, it was comforting to know, even though I was really powerless in that situation, because they weren't really screaming at me, were they? They were really screaming at the Lord. In whatever minor way I could possibly reflect Him, they could see that little bit of Christ, and that's who they hated. See? And that's comforting to know, isn't it? Because if, if that's happening, then perhaps you're doing what you should do, maybe. You know, it, it, to some small degree, as inconsequential as I am, they could see that, see. And they weren't really throwing stuff at me, they were throwing at Christ. And, and you know, I remember down in South Florida, again, we were, we were surrounded by a lot of um, demonic cults, Santeria and, and a bunch of other ones. And from time to time, they would sacrifice animals and just throw it on the steps of the church. Dogs, and chickens, and doves, and all kinds of stuff happened a good bit. I would try to get there early, me and some of the other pastors. If that was the case, we'd have a bag, scoop it up, throw it in the trash, wash down the steps, that kind of thing. You know, and that's a little disconcerting. People walk up, oh my, why are people doing this? Well, actually, you probably should look at it the other way, that the fact that they hate us so much is really not us at all. What is it? It's the Lord. It's who gets represented, see? We, we, we don't really matter in the big scheme of things. Satan's not out to just mess us up, see? He wants to embarrass the Lord. He wants to make... Christians feel uncomfortable, see, but he doesn't really care that much about us. But that can make you feel better when you think about that and you think that the side that you're on and you know how strong Jesus is, you're not really worried, are you? And I can't tell you, and this is another one, I, it's just heartbreaking and this probably happened to you. I can't tell you how many times that um, I've been asked by someone to disciple them. They're having a hard time and they want to be discipled and, um, and so I start doing it and I spend a lot of hours pouring over some scriptures and getting prepared and giving them some homework and, and then, uh, you know, want to come back in and go back and forth. And then only for a few months later, they out of the church and out of Christianity and live like they want and declare they've never been happier. Yeah, how, how do you explain that other than there's a huge spiritual warfare going on, right? I remember someone coming into my office down in South Florida, just bent on self-destruction. And we talked numerous times, I mean, over a course of months. And he went out and killed himself. I mean, you do what you can do. You, you, you're really very small player in the, whole, in the whole thing, right? I mean, you, you, you just got to be faithful to do what you can do. But there's this huge battle going on, right? There, you know, Satan's at work in the world. He's troubling those who don't know Christ. You know, he's an accuser of the brother. And he's deceived the entire world. He'd destroy us if he could, right? I mean, this is, this is, the, this is the actual reality of the world we live in. We shouldn't be just coasting through, making sure we feel happy and fulfilled and free, right? That's, that's not the sum of our existence. There's a battle going on. And I don't want to drag this out. I mean, I, I know you can see this, and, and many of you have had similar experiences. So I just want to wrap this up. 
Satan's also at work in the church. There's a struggle constantly going on there. Did you know that? A couple of ways he does that. 2 Timothy 2.24. He does it through troublemakers. Oh, those are the watch people on the wall. No, actually they're not. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. You know, I say this to young pastors all the time, you're going to have trouble, okay, um, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. I mean, that's, that's an actual reality of your life. You're going to have that all the time. And then it says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. See, you're very inconsequential to the whole thing, aren't you? It's just because you're in that position, that's why you're receiving the trouble. It wouldn't matter if it wasn't you. Be, if it was someone else in the position, they'd still get the same trouble from the same people, you see? Why? That they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. What? Yeah, that's people in the church. Did you know that? People who are constant troublemakers, people who are trying to sow discord constantly. Did you realize they've been captivated by Satan temporarily to do his will? And you have to correct them. You don't just get to be quiet. You have to actually correct them in gentleness and pray that the God will grant them repentance because they've been taken captive. He's causing trouble in the church all the time. Did you know that? I mean, troublemakers sound really good in your ear. Did you know they sound super spiritual and they have the right words to say? But did you know that? They've been taken captive by Satan to do his will. They're telling you when they're feeding you gossip and they're backbiting, you understand they're not. That's not a spiritual Either of those. 2 Corinthians 2.10. He does it through unforgiveness in the church. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, as what I have forgiven, I've forgiven anything. I did it for the sakes, for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Mark it so that no advantage would be taken by us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. What's that just mean? That just means this. You know, unforgiveness is one of the, one of the biggest thorns and, and, and difficulties inside the church when individual believers hold unforgiveness against one another and don't deal with it and reconcile. Did you realize that it puts the person who holds unforgiveness in a really bad spot? Did you know that? I mean, it puts you in the spot, Matthew 18, where somebody who, was, who owed an unpayable debt to a ruler, the ruler forgave him. Do you remember this? Just forgave him the debt. He couldn't pay it anyway. He just forgave him. And then he goes out and he grabs somebody who owes him a payable debt and throttles him and says, pay me right now. And everybody's like, what? You got, you got forgiven an unpayable debt. You don't want to be that guy, right? Not only that, listen, you don't get forgiven from a fellowship perspective unless you offer it to everybody. Did you know that? You don't get the option of holding on to stuff. And I say this all the time, you know, you have a couple options when people do wrong things to you because undoubtedly they will. The first one is you can chase it all down. And you can tell them exactly how they hurt your feelings and why they were wrong. And you can say, I'm waiting for an apology. And you know what? They might not give it to you. And guess what you have to do? You still have to forgive them. You got that, right? You understand? Because that's a payable debt. You still have to forgive them. And that just compounds the frustration, doesn't it? Because you were, you, were, you were wounded the first time. And then you went to them and said, you really hurt my feelings. And you said such and such. And uh, so you give me a, well, I, yeah, you know, it's not a big deal. And now you have to deal with all the self-talk and the, you know, all the stuff inside that's just tearing you up and you're walking home and you're just like, oh, and then you get home and you got to confess all of that, right? So it's just easier just to forgive, isn't it? And that's precisely what Paul says, just forgive because we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. He's at work in the church through unforgiveness, just like he is through troublemakers. 
And then he's also at work in the church, 2 Corinthians 4, 3, by blinding the eyes of unbelievers. You know, people come in, you don't know what condition they're in spiritually. Did you, and I think you understand that. Paul says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, mark it, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, a couple of things to take away there. First of all, that's an argument for presenting the gospel clearly, isn't it? Not that God loves you and wants to be your friend, okay, or has a wonderful plan for your life. But the bad news, separate and sinful, and you're under a curse and headed for a Christless eternity. And in case you're unsure about that, just go through the Ten Commandments. And then the good news, you can't live this life, but Christ lived it for you perfectly and exchanged his life for yours. You see, you don't want it to be veiled because you're unclear. But secondly, people come in and they've been veiled by the wicked one so that they can't understand it. You don't know about that, do you? But you have a job to do, don't you? You see a new person, you see somebody who's here, you, you, have, the, you have the obligation to go and talk to them and befriend them and see where they are, right? Maybe you're the key to all of that. But he's at work in all of that. Second, and in 1 Timothy 3, 2, he's at work attempting to ruin the testimony of a pastor. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. So above reproach can't be called out. That's what that means. The husband of one wife, and not a player, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious. It means you're not a giver of blows, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And mark this, not a new convert, so he'll not become conceited, mark it, and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And verse 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Again, mark it so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. So, he'd like to ruin the testimony of the church through the ruin of a pastor. And we know plenty of stories about how that exactly has happened over the years, right? And also, he, wants, he attacks the church by, by uh, giving, bringing false teachers and the doctrine of demons into the church. We looked at that extensively, so we won't look at that again. We understand that clearly, don't we? And then Satan's at work in the family. He wants to destroy the family because that is where faith is passed down from one generation to the next, and it's the picture of Christ in the church. And that's not all, I think, but you, you get the picture. But you know what we can know about all of that? Satan is at work attacking the church, not because you and I are important, okay? We're incidental. He's blinding eyes and taking troublemakers captive and tempting pastors because he doesn't want God's glory to be seen. He's at work in the family because it's the picture of Christ and the church and the primary vehicle by which the gospel is handed down from generation to generation. He does all of that not because he particularly hates those things necessarily, but he hates that the glory of God would be made manifest in the face of Christ in those things. You got that? As Jason read just earlier, he hates that and all those things that because he wants to avoid that for all eternity, God would be thanked for the grace and mercy he's bestowed. See, he doesn't want that to happen. 
That's how he attacks. And you need to remember that, beloved, when you see things like this around you. Remember the source of those things. When some family is struggling, when somebody is having a hard time, when somebody's sitting there with a blank look on their face, when somebody is not faithful and coming back to church, maybe they aren't even born again, and their eyes have been blinded, see? And some pastor struggling, or you know a pastor, pray for him because you understand there's a bunch of requirements, and then on top of that, he can fall into a difficulty. It's a spiritual warfare. So remember the source of all that, and, and you have a job to do to fight the good fight, and you should expect to have hardship. You, you should expect to have to be fervent and faithful and earnest. You should expect that because that's commanded of you. And when we're not fighting the good fight and doing duty, he's given us and he has to come in and throw out the money changers. That doesn't make him look very good, does it? Jesus comes to the temple and it's just a big mess in there, and he goes in there with a whip, and everybody thinks badly of Jesus. How could he possibly have the right to do that? That was so unkind. You see? We don't do our duty. We're messing it up. We, all, we, all, we throw aspersion on him. See? It doesn't make him look too great. It's a war. It's a struggle. It's going on all the time, especially in the areas we looked at. There are many others that we didn't have time for. Let's wrap up, because we're about out of time. Now we have the sense of the passage, okay? And I know I took a long time with that, but I think it was important. I think you get the sense of what's actually going on. You, think you, you can understand the bigger picture a little bit. Just from the few things that we looked at, I think you understand what kind of war and what kind of struggle this is. So now we can answer the question, how do we effectively fight? What do we do? We're not binding Satan. We're not making him do our will and all that. That's not even our job. What is it that we're supposed to do? And we've kind of hinted at it a few times, but 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, and this is for everyone. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So, if you're going to fight the good fight, you can't use your own intellect, you can't use your own wisdom, it's not your own natural talents that are going to make any difference. The weapons of our warfare are mighty enough to topple the kingdom of Satan, but they're not in our power. And the weapons of our warfare can cast down Satan's imaginations, which really are all the contrary things that you hear constantly in your ears. The weapons of our warfare can destroy anything raised up against the knowledge of God. Mark this, the weapons of our warfare can take captive every thought to the, what's the word? Obedience of Christ. Your duty and my duty, which is fighting the good fight of faith, is summed up in the word obedience. Do you understand that, beloved? It's just so simple. It's summed up in the word obedience. The Christian life is a struggle. It's a constant warfare where each believer must do their duty. And that duty is whatever the Lord has given us to do. And you do it in the way that the scripture has commanded you to do it. You get it? That's your duty. And whatever circumstances we're in, wherever we see the battle raging, we bring the obedience to the word of God. See? We address it with the power of the word of God through the gifts of the spirit in the fruit of the spirit. Just very straightforward. 
Just be obedient. You'll be right where you're supposed to be. When you get up, when you're at, when you're at Bistro on Wednesday and you look around and see a, a new face, get up. Go sit with them. You don't have any idea what's going on there, but let me tell you one thing. If they're there, the Lord's given us participation. We're inconsequential as it really plays out in the big picture, but here's where you can be obedient. Go. See where they are spiritually. See what kind of needs you can meet. That's appropriate, isn't it? We just address it with faithfulness. We act in the way the Word has told us to act. We're going to see that in the very next verse of our passage we're looking at, verse 19, in faithfulness and a good conscience. It's just so straightforward. We act the way the Word has told us to act. That's our duty every time. And the more you do that, the more opportunity you'll have to wage the war. Do you see? In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says this, To this end I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you're obedient in the things you feel like doing. No, in all things. I don't feel like doing that. Well, that, that isn't one of the options you have, right? If you come up under a commander who's given you a, a mandate, then you have to do it. Believing, uh, the weapons of believers are not binding Satan. The, the weapons are not mystical. They're not some human skill, not some acquired ability, some second work of the Holy Spirit. Listen, none of that. You've got everything you need. And the word of God was given to you so that you would be able to fight the good fight. Weapons are brought to bear as we do our duty in obeying the Lord in everything. Ephesians tells us our weapon is the sword. Do you remember that? He, he equips us with all kinds of armor and he gives us one offensive weapon. What is it? Your intellect? Whether or not you feel good about something? No. It's the sword of the, of the Spirit, the word of God. That you'll know what to do, what to say, how to How to move. Obedience is our duty, and that by that we fight the good fight, and that by itself is a struggle, and we should expect it to be. It should be hard to do what we're doing. But as we begin to master obedience, we're useful in the struggling going on around us everywhere. It's everywhere, okay? You know, in this room or in the previous service, there's somebody who needs discipled, and you're the one. Did you know that? You already know this. Some of you already know that you're the one that should be taking them under your wing and helping them, helping them grow. Maybe the Lord will use you to strengthen families or, or pastors or, or the church, certainly avoiding causing trouble for the church. Uh, that may be useful enough in not complaining. Maybe being useful in helping others and discipleship and, and meeting needs or encouragement. And do it, Ephesians 4.2 says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You want to preserve the bond of peace, beloved? Forgive each other. Unconditionally. Let it go. You don't have the right to hold it if you're a believer. I, certainly you understand that. You don't have the right to hold on to it if you're a believer. That is as clear as anything in the Scripture. With humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Obedience preserves the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you know that? That's how it works. Obedience with each individual preserves the spirit of unity in the bond of peace in the church. And maybe he'll use you and fulfill your duty and obedience to the Great Commission by presenting the gospel so that those who've been blinded by the God of this world can have the veil removed. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're up. That's bound to be dismissed in prayer. 
Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in the Word. It was hard to hear. It was hard to teach. Struggled with it all week. Just so simple. It shouldn't be surprising to us. It's not some complex thing that we have to figure out. We're right where we need to be and doing what we should do when we're doing what the Word of God says as clearly and obediently as we can. We'll know then preserving the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace, precisely where we need to be plugged in. Maybe you've begun to prick hearts already. We'll know that we need to offer forgiveness. We'll know that we need to, to bridge gaps. We know that we need to spread the gospel. We'll know that we need to meet needs and to bring earnestness and fervency to the work that we do. All these things so very important for us as we do our duty, forgotten word in Christianity, but not forgotten by you, and certainly in your word you repeat it over and over again. And so, Father, just work as you see fit. I only know what you do in my own heart, not what you do in the hearts of individuals, so I pray, Father, you'll, you'll bless them, encourage them, strengthen them, bring them under conviction if need be, take them apart and put them back together correctly. Help them to fix the problems today, starting today, and become engaged Forget the self-absorbed, satisfied, resting, all of those things, Father, just get in the way of freedom to indulge in whatever we want, as if somehow a soldier could just do that. We find that absurd in our own life, let alone in the life of the kingdom. So I pray all this, Father, that you work your work in us be about what we need to know as we go through this passage, breaking that apart so we can understand. It'd be easy to just go through, fight the good fight of faith, okay, shake our head and move on to the next passage and, and not grasp this at all. So, Father, I pray that uh, whatever point we've interacted correctly with the Word, that you just resonate that in the hearts of uh, those who love you. I pray thus all in the name of your Son, Jesus, and for his sake and all God's people said, Amen.